please stand with me in honor of God's word. This morning we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and this can be found on page 57 in your pew Bibles or on the screens behind me. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You seek, at, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to Exodus 15. As we look at this song together. And let's uh, pray and ask God to meet us. Lord, we, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. And we pray this morning that we would be a people who listen. And we know that, uh, that that's more than just learning information. That is, listening to you as you as your spirit takes your word and buries it deep into our hearts to change our lives. And so we pray that that's what you would do this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why does the church sing? 
I don't know if you've ever thought about that question before. Why does the church sing? Uh, how, you know, if you think about it, how weird is it in some ways that, that whenever the church gathers together on Sunday morning, and, and sometimes even in our, our midweek meetings, we spend a third or more of our time singing together. No other community gathering really does that. I mean, unless you're part of a choir that exists for the purpose of singing, it's just not normal. You might have some cheesy camp songs if you are at summer camp or something like that, but when, when you go to work, you know, and your boss calls a staff meeting, he doesn't hand out songbooks to everybody and lead you in a rousing chorus of We Are the Champions or something like that. You don't start your high school morning by singing the glories of Natick High or Framingham High or whatever school you go to. Even, uh, you know, you, you might listen to music together sometimes. You might listen to music at the gym or at a restaurant, but you don't stand and sing together. I mean, just you would probably be looking for a different gym if you walked in and everyone's like holding hands singing. That would that would be weird. Even attending a concert is a lot more about watching someone perform than actually joining in and singing. And so why do Christians sing? It's not because we're all musicians. Some of us are. Some of us can't carry a tune in a bucket, which doesn't stop us from belting it out, nor should it. Uh, It's not really because we like music, though I'm, you know, many of us really like music, but that's not the reason either. And it's not even because the church has just always done that. Uh, congregational singing actually fell out of practice prior to the Reformation. Martin Luther, in many ways, is responsible for the fact that we spend so much time singing together as a church today. So why do Christians sing? Well, the reality is, of course, there are several reasons uh, why we spend a significant amount of our time together. But some of the most fundamental reasons are what we see here in Exodus 15. We sing because we have been saved and we can't help but praise God for that. We sing to remember our salvation and what he's done. And most importantly, we sing because God, our Savior, is uniquely worthy of our praise. He's uniquely worthy of it. These are the reasons that we find Israel singing on the shores of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus for uh, a few months, uh, getting caught up in this story of God's incredible work of salvation for his people. And last week, we witnessed God's decisive defeat of Egypt. God's people had been enslaved uh, in Egypt by Egypt for centuries. They'd been tortured, oppressed, forced into labor, at times systematically murdered uh, by way of population control. But God came down to rescue them. He raised up his servant Moses to lead them out. He humbled Egypt through great signs and wonders. He redeemed his people. 
protecting them from his judgment as he poured it out on Egypt, giving Israel instead the Passover lamb who would die in place of their firstborn children. And so God led them out of Egypt. As we saw last week, he saved them in order to demonstrate his own glory and power. He wrote the plan. He did the work. He gets the credit for his incredible act of salvation. And and we saw that uh, work out as he led them up to the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh and Egypt on their heels, pinning them down, where all hope looked lost. But God shows up in a miraculous way. He parts the Red Sea. His people go through on dry ground. And as the Egyptian army follows them, The Lord brings the waters back down upon them, getting his glory over Pharaoh and all his horsemen and chariots. As uh, chapter 14, verses 30 to 31 summarized, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So that's where we landed last week. And what happens next has been accused of being a later addition to the story of Exodus or or an awkward insertion. You're, You're running along with this narrative, and then all of a sudden you've got this poem, and it feels out of place for some. What's a poem doing in a narrative all of a sudden? But in reality, what happens next is the only thing that should happen next. Israel sings the praise of God for what has just happened. And so this morning, what I want to do is look at why Israel sings. Why do they sing praise to the Lord? And what Israel sings? What are they actually praising him for And then how that guides and motivates us today. And we'll start with why Israel sings. Why does Israel sing? Bob Coughlin, who is a worship leader and the author of actually many of the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. uh, Bob Coughlin offers three reasons of why Christians sing. First, to remember God's word. To respond to God's grace and to reflect God's glory. And I think those are helpful categories, and we see all three of them in Exodus 15. The most immediately prominent reason of why Israel sings is is the second reason that Coughlin gives, that singing helps us respond to God's grace. Look again at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This song is a direct response or reaction to God's saving work for Israel. Uh, Phil Riken writes that chapter 14 is the story of Israel's salvation. We just read that. It's the flight from Egypt, the the passage through the sea, and so on. But salvation always demands a response. A response of praise 
that is most suitably expressed in song. A song, therefore, the song of Moses, the song of salvation, was not merely appropriate at this point in the Exodus. It was mandatory. This is what they had to do based on what God had done for them. Israel sings in response to God's great work of salvation. They can't help but praise him. And if you think about it, praise is is very natural. We do it all of the time. Uh, We praise the things that we love or enjoy. C.S. Lewis wrote that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their sweethearts, readers their favorite poets, walkers praising the countryside. The world is filled with praise. And and, uh, another author, Von Roberts, adds, the Christian's praise of God should be just as natural. It should be just as natural. We should be so excited about who God is and what he's done for us that we want to tell others. That we want to tell others. If your tire blows out on 128 and a patrolman pulls up behind you to kind of block traffic and then, lo and behold, actually helps you replace or fix that tire, you don't have to be told to say thank you. You're just going to do it as a natural response of gratitude for what he's just done. If you are caught in a, in a riptide at the beach and a lifeguard rushes out to pull you to safety, what's the first thing you're going to tell people when you get home that day? You'll never believe what happened. Here's how this person rescued me. In fact, you probably won't even wait till you get home. You'll be Instagramming a selfie with your lifeguard or something like that, telling how amazing this guy is for what he just did. You don't have to be told to praise when someone saves you. It's just what you do. How much more when God saves us from sin and death and hell? We can't help but praise. It's a natural, really a non-optional response to God's saving work. It gives a, a collective voice to the community of the redeemed. That was true for Israel at the Red Sea. It's true for us before the cross. And one of the most appropriate and meaningful ways to express our praise is through song. It's by singing. Again, Roberts writes, If it is natural to praise, it is also natural to sing. James writes in chapter 5, verse 13, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. It's a natural response. Singing is one of the ways in which we express our emotions. Emotions of gratitude and humility and joy and love as we respond to God's grace. We sing. Coughlin's first reason is also true of Exodus 15. So we sing as a response to God's grace. We also sing to help us remember God's word. As we're going to see, uh, the song of Moses here is not just a declaration of how amazing God is. It is that. But it's also a rehearsal of what God has done. 
it tells the story. And you're kind of thinking, we just read that story. Why is he telling the story again in song? Well, in praise and in order to remember it. Singing helps us remember what God has done to pass it on to the next generation. I mean, if you think about it, how much easier is it to remember something uh, when you learn it by song? I mean, there are some things we wish we could forget, but we can't forget because the stupid song gets in our head and it won't go away. You know, most of us learned our ABCs not by drilling with flashcards or memorizing them some other way. We learned them with a song. And so singing helps us remember God's Word, what He's done. And then third, Coughlin's uh, last reason also applies, and I think it's really the most important, that singing helps us reflect God's glory. It, It helps us respond to His grace, to remember His Word. It helps us to reflect God's glory. It is a way of magnifying God, of making much of our Lord and Savior and giving Him the glory that He deserves. So, so we sing because we're saved. We sing to remember our salvation, but ultimately because God, our Savior, is uniquely worthy of praise. If we can praise the countryside, if we can praise our, our latest favorite show on Netflix and tell people how great it is, how much more worthy is God of our praise? And that gets to the heart of what praise really is. Praise is not just saying the words, praise God, or praise the Lord. We do that a lot, you know, praise God, which is fine. It's fine. Nothing wrong with doing that. But the, the phrase, praise the Lord, which is a translation of the Hebrew, hallelujah. We say that a lot too, hallelujah. Hallelujah is a command. It's not just an expression. It's a command. It's telling you to do something. Hey, you. Praise the Lord, which is to describe what God is like, his worthiness and his attributes, or to declare what God has done, his works or his acts. That's what praise is. It's it's describing what God is like and declaring what God has done. Praising God is making much of him in that way. And so we sing to reflect God's glory, to, to declare who he is and what he's done with hearts of gratitude and love. And, and that's what we were really made to do. Again, to quote Roberts, when we praise God, we are engaged in the activity which is most authentically human. For we are doing that for which we were created. We were made in God's image to reflect his glory, his majesty. And God's goal in calling us to belong to him as Christians is that we might be, quote, for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1. We were created for God's glory. We were saved for God's glory. And so praise is is one of the most natural human things to do. A song of praise is like a mirror we hold up to God, reflecting his glory back to himself. So why does Israel praise? Why do they sing? Because they can't help but respond to God and his saving work. Because they want to remember God's saving work. And in order to give him the glory that he deserves. 
That's why they sing. But what do they sing? What do they actually, in what does their praise consist? And so look again at chapter 15 and the actual words of their song. This song itself uh, flows a lot more like a hymn than some of our modern songs. There's no repeated refrain or chorus that they keep coming back to. You do find examples of that in the Psalms. Uh, but here it's more, you know, uh, four verses, if you will. There are four stanzas to the song. And the first in verses one through three is very much an introduction. It's kind of your lead in to this song of praise. The second stanza in verses four through ten rehearses the story of God's recent triumph over Israel, over Egypt. It tells the story. The third stanza in 11 through 13 is really the crescendo. It's the centerpiece. It builds up to this burst of declaration of God's worthiness. And then finally, the fourth stanza looks forward in anticipation of how God will continue to triumph as Israel enters the land. And then, of course, uh, there's an encore performance after the Song of Moses. Uh, Miriam uh, leads a reprisal uh, with the women dancing and singing and, and, and so on. And so this is beautiful scene of worship of ancient Israel. And as we're going to see in each stanza, they are giving praise to God either by describing what he's like, his worthiness, his attributes, or by declaring what he has done his works, or his acts. And sometimes they're doing both. And all of it is focused on the triumph of God. That's what this song is about. But here's the deal. Songs are meant to be sung, not explained. So this is the language of the heart, as, as much, if not more, than, than the language of the intellect. And so my goal here is not to kill the song by treating it like a specimen on a lab table and dissecting and explaining every little detail in it. We're going to sing this song together in a few minutes. A friend of mine, uh, Doug O'Donnell, when he preached through the songs of Scripture, took several of them and took the words of these songs and set them to the tunes of established hymns. And so we're going to sing Exodus 15 in a little bit. But with any song, it is important to think about what we're singing, not just to go through the motions. It does the heart little good to sing if the mind doesn't know what you're singing or why. And so I do want to offer a few brief explanations, uh, a few brief reflections on what the song means, along with some reflections on, on how that ought to guide and shape our worship today. So first, the melody of Exodus 15. The melody. The melody of this song, the main theme that holds it together and flows throughout every stanza is the strength and majesty of God. That's the melody. That's the main theme. Those are the notes that you hear repeated over and over again. So, for instance, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song, verse 2. The Lord is a man of war, verse 3. His strength and his majesty. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. 
your right hand, that right, that language of right hand being a picture of strength, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, verse 7. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God's strength and majesty. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them, verse 12. You have guided your people by your strength to your holy abode. Because of the greatness of your arm, the nations are still a stone, verse 16. The Lord will reign forever and ever, verse 18. It's unmistakable what this song is about. God's strength and majesty, his glory and power. This is what God is like. He is unparalleled in his strength. He is unique in his majesty, unmatched in his glory, triumphant over his enemies. This is the song of the redeemed. And it's not focused on us. It's focused on God. How incredible and worthy he is. He wrote the plan. He did the work. He gets the glory and the credit. But there are two ways that this melody is accented in the song. There are two ways that God's majesty and strength are illustrated or described. And that's by his judgment and his mercy. Those are the two accents that you see on that melody of majesty and strength. And of those two accents... Judgment is overwhelmingly predominant in this song. So we see it in the introduction in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, from Israel's perspective, that's salvation. But that's salvation by judging their enemies and, and defeating them. And we see it, of course, in the entire second stanza in verses 4 through 10 retelling the story. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. It's this description of God's work of defeating Egypt. And lest we forget why, verse 9 reminds us of Egypt and Pharaoh's arrogant presumption, not only that they could steal God's children and turn them into slaves for their own kingdom, but that they could actually defeat God. Verse 9, this is what the enemy said. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw the sword, my hand shall destroy them. You see this, the self-centeredness of Egypt in all of that, their presumption and arrogance. Pharaoh thought he was bigger than God. But the Lord demonstrates his unique majesty and strength through judgment you blew with your wind 
and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. There's no comparison. There's no competition. And God is worthy to be praised for that. For bringing his just judgment on Egypt. Which feels kind of strange for us. You know, if you think about the songs that we typically sing, very few of them talk about God's judgment. We're not used to singing or praising God because he's a just judge. Um, and if our goal in singing of God's judgment were to gloat over our enemies or to revel in revenge or, or to tear others down in order to feel better about ourselves, it would be completely out of place to sing like that. And Jesus tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. But praising God for executing judgment is not the same thing as wishing it upon specific people. It is to long for justice in a fallen world. For God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and to exult in the only God who has the strength and majesty to establish it. It is to long for evil to be finished. Evil will not win. And we should praise God for the fact that evil will not win. The songs of Scripture praise Him for that all of the time, both Old and New Testament. Violence, abuse, greed, racism, oppression, selfishness, Slander, idolatry, malice, exploitation, envy, all forms of evil will be brought to rights. They will come under God's just judgment, either in the end when Christ returns to execute that judgment, or in advance through the cross, where he has already borne that judgment on behalf of his people. In the cross, God was judging sin. And Christ took that judgment in our place, just like with the Passover lamb. God was judging sin in the plague of the firstborn. And the lamb took the judgment in place of Israel. The melody of God's majesty and strength is accented is accented with a declaration of just judgment. But don't forget that there's a, the other side of that coin. That in judging Egypt, God was saving Israel. In the cross, as God judged sin, he was saving sinners. And so God's majesty and strength are also accented by his mercy. They're accented by his mercy. And while judgment gets the primary accent in this song, if you put all the songs together, mercy gets the primary accent because judgment is ultimately in root to that mercy and love. And we see God's mercy here in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's mercy. Israel didn't deserve to be rescued from Egypt. They were just as guilty of sin as the Egyptians, which is why they needed the lamb. But God in his mercy became their salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him because of his mercy. 
We see it in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love, your loyal covenant love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And Israel saw God's mercy not only by looking back to the Exodus, but also by looking forward with eyes of faith to what God would yet do for them. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And that brings us to the coda of the song, if you will. I'm probably slaughtering my musical terms, but Drew can correct me later. But the, the fourth stanza acts a little bit like a, a coda to the song. It's in addition to the basic structure that brings the song to conclusion. And again, you, you see the melody dominating it. It's God's majesty and strength on display. But now there's a, there's a new variation as the song comes to a close that takes us from, from looking back on the Exodus to now looking forward to what God's going to do for his people in the future. As he leads them through the wilderness and gives them the land he promised. It's this journey through the wilderness and God's reputation precedes him. The surrounding nations are freaking out about the Lord and his power. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God's plans are going to succeed. He will plant his people on his holy mountain and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign. So sometimes in our praise of, of describing what God is like or declaring what he's done, sometimes our praise looks back on what God's done in the past. Most of our praise does that. Sometimes it looks forward with faith to what he will yet do. And even our, some of our songs today do that. Uh, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. That's looking forward with faith. Or amazing grace. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Looking forward, praising God for what he will yet do. Israel sings because they have been saved and they can't help it. They sing to remember their salvation, to describe what God is like, to declare what he has done and what he will yet do in his own strength and glory. And they sing because the Lord is uniquely worthy of their praise. He alone is majestic. Who is like the Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And it's for those very same reasons that we still sing today. To respond to God's grace. In Christ, we have been saved. We who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked. 
lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were apart from Christ, who we are apart from Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Jesus Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. In living a righteous life on our behalf, in giving that life up on the cross to pay for our sins, and in taking that life up again to rule over us as our resurrected king, to give us new life to all who will believe in him, trust him. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so how can we not but marvel over his grace? We didn't deserve any of that. And so we sing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. It's this expression of glory and marvel over what Christ has done for us. It's a response to his grace. So we sing to respond to God's grace. We sing to remember our salvation as well. To tell the story again and again. The story of Christ. In Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. We sing to tell that story, to remember what God has done story of Christ, and we sing the story of our own salvation in Christ, to never forget what he's done for us. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. That's amazing. We sing because we've been saved. To remember that salvation. And most importantly, we sing because God is uniquely worthy of our praise. In all his majesty and strength. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. He is uniquely worthy of our praise.
And for these reasons, the church will keep on singing, even to eternity. In Revelation 15, the song of Moses is still being sung. Now with a new rendition, it includes the song of the Lamb. Revelation 15, 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses that they sang by the sea that day is still being sung in heaven to this day and will be sung through all eternity because of who God is and what he's done to save his people. And so let's sing it together this morning. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing my strength, my song, my salvation. Let's pray. Lord, there are truly no words to express how incredible you are, how worthy of praise and glory. Your word is full of songs that, that, that lift our hearts to you, that make yourself known to us. And even as we sing them back to you, Lord, we can't help but, but feel that there's so much more to your beauty and majesty that can ever be put into words. And yet, Lord, we want to do our best to give you the glory you deserve, to praise you for who you are in all of your sovereign majesty and beauty and glory, and to declare what you have done for us in the cross and in the resurrection. And we pray that in our singing this morning and every morning, that you would receive the glory due your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.